One of life's greatest questions is what happens to us after we die. Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to firsthand accounts of people who have been clinically dead and return to talk about it. We have on the show today, Kev from the UK, my new friend over in the UK. How are you, Kev? I'm fine, Eric. How are you over there in Utah? Is everything going well? Great. Brilliant. It, it's hot, but I know it's hot yeah. where you are too. It's, it's been melting. It's been absolutely melting, Eric. We've, uh, we've hit a new um, national record of 40 degrees plus centigrade, which has sent um, everybody into uh, very bad tempers. And because um, we're just not used to it in this country at all, we're not used to the, that kind of heat. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a difficult time, but uh, yeah, yeah, we are slowly coming out of it now and getting back to normal. Well, if, if people on the podcast could see you, they would see a guy wearing <laughs> what, what here we call a tank top. And because yes. uh, yeah. you're trying to keep cool because there's no such thing as air conditioning in the UK. We, so We do not know what those words mean. We have no concept no. of what they mean. I wish we did. I wish we did. We do have it in stores. So people, you'll find that people um, will not stay on the pavements. They were going to stores, not to buy stuff, but just to stand under the air conditioning for about three hours and then leave <laughs> the store, which is really odd. So we have them in stores, but we don't have them in the homes. No, we just open the window and hope for the best. Well, it makes you want to stay in the store and buy stuff. So I get it. Hey, would you just give us a little bit of background? Um, I know that you had your near-death experience about four years ago. Would you just briefly tell us what led up to that? Absolutely. Um, it was 2018, uh, four years ago. You're correct. I was 55 years of age. And I thought, I know, I'll do something for the community. You know, And um, so I went out and I thought, well, what can I do? And I've always been interested in sport and especially in soccer uh, and cricket. I'm not sure if your uh, listeners are aware of cricket. Cricket is like baseball on Valium. It is, it, it, it's like baseball, but it, it's very, very slow. It takes five days to play a game. That's how slow it is. <laughs> <laughs> so baseball on Valium. I thought our baseball was slow. No, no, this is slow. This is five days. You really have to have the patience of an English person um, to even sit through it. But I, I thought, I know, I'll go, and, um, I'll go and do something for the community. And around our way, there's a lot of soccer uh, for young kids and teenagers. And I thought, I know, I'll, I'll go and become a football coach. That's what I'll do, or a soccer coach, as you would say. I thought, I know, that's what I'll do. And at 55, you know, I went off and I thought, well, I can still run and I can still walk. And, you know, I, I know what football looks like, what soccer ball looks like. And I basically went and for four weeks, I tried to keep up with a load of 17-year-olds in heats of 35 degrees Celsius. And... Yeah, I, I went all shades of purple. But what happened, unfortunately, was I developed a hole in my foot. Now, I've been diabetic since 2008, and I had this tiny little hole in my foot, and I didn't even know it was there. My wife noticed it, and she said, oh, we need to keep an eye on that, because obviously, you know, with diabetes, we have to watch limbs and, and bits dropping off and, and all that kind of stuff. So I kept an eye on it, and I went to my local doctor, and I said, I'm really worried about this and everything else. And at that point, um, I was actually quite ill because what had happened was that sepsis had begun to develop in the foot. And the doctors completely missed it. And they said, well, I'm, I'm sure it'll be okay. And they packed it with seaweed. I've no idea why. But they packed it with seaweed and they sent me away. And inside a week, I was delirious. I was absolutely... 
I, I didn't know what day it was. Um, and my foot had gone, it didn't even look like a foot anymore, it had gone black. And when we took the seaweed out, I smelled like a sewer, literally a sewer. I was rushed to the hospital where it was ascertained that I was very, very poorly indeed. And I thought I would go in and maybe get an aspirin or something, a paracetamol, and they sent me home. I'd have a sticking plaster, and they said, no, you're going to have to stay in hospital. And I'd never stayed in hospital. And they, so I said, how long overnight? And they said, well, we don't know. And they were trying to keep from me the fact that I was very, very ill. I went for x-rays, and it was discovered that the sepsis had gone deeply because the seaweed had gone in and had been packed in. The sepsis had gone, well, I can't go that way, so I'll go into the bones. So it had gone completely into my bones. And they put me in a hospital bed. I was jabbed. I was a needle phobe before I went in. I was petrified of needles. I was cured within two hours of being in there because I had needles everywhere. Um, and in fact, they gave me an epidural at one stage. Um, and and that, by that time, I, I couldn't have cared less. I, I, was, I was gone beyond it. And they said, um, your foot is really bad. And me and my wife watched my foot and we could see the toes dying one by one, gone black and, and dying. And we watched, there was a line going up my leg. And they said, well, if that line, if that black line goes above your knee, that's because we can't, we can cut your knee off. We can't cut you in the middle. We're not a um, magic act. So if it goes above the knee, that's it. You're completely toast. Um, and so uh, I was rushed down to surgery. And unfortunately, while I was in the surgery, my heart started to give out because of the sheer stress of what was going on in my body. And they brought me back. And unfortunately, they brought me back during the operation, right at the peak of the operation. And I could hear these, this conversation going on with these two men. And this was in October. And I thought, I could hear this snap, snap, snap. I thought, oh, they're making a Christmas tree or something because, you know, it's Christmas. I didn't realize they were cutting my bits of my foot off. Um, and I was completely not aware where, where I was at all. And after the operation, they said, um, well, we've, we've taken a lot of your foot away. And they looked at my leg and it was still black. And they said, we're going to need to take your leg off because we can't take any chances. We got rid of a lot of it, but it's clear that there's still sepsis in that leg. And they were going to take my, my leg off. And so it was arranged the following morning at nine o'clock, my, my leg would be gone. And that would be that. I would have a robot leg or a false leg or wooden leg or whatever I wanted, but, but that leg could not stay. And I, again, I didn't realize how bad I was, Eric, because... I'd never been in hospital before, but it kept waking me up every hour to jab me or take my temperature or do this with needles. And I didn't realize why, but because basically they check you every hour to make sure that you haven't died in, <laughs> in the bed. Uh, you know, if you're, and they were that worried about me. And I felt so bad for my wife who had had that awful phone call. Your husband is really poorly. He's dropping fast. You need to get in the hospital as quickly as you can. Um, I was oblivious of that while I was done in surgery. So my wife was really concerned about me and I didn't feel very well, it has to be said. And they woke me up at five o'clock in the morning uh, just to check me and they said, are you still alive? And I said, yes, I'm still alive. And they chapped me and they took my blood um, and they did all this kind of stuff. And about quarter past five, I, I knew I had about four hours before the operation. And about quarter past five in the morning, I didn't feel very well. I didn't feel well at all. I had a pain in my chest and I thought, well, that doesn't, that's not good. I don't like that. And it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And 
I'm British. I don't like making a fuss at all. But I thought I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to jolly how well I have to make a fuss in, in a moment because this pain's getting really bad. And I had a buzzer by the side of my bed, and I I can remember reaching for the buzzer, Eric, and then it, everything went black. I can't remember anything after that. And apparently, I'd fallen back on the bed. And the next thing I know, I'm in a tunnel. I'm traveling down the tunnel very, very quickly, and I'm going feet first. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and the inside of the tunnel has also got illumination in it as well. It looks like I'm in a very long road tunnel, and I'm whizzing down this tunnel feet first. And I'm just trying to take everything in. You, know, you don't really realize what's going on. The pain in my chest is gone. And yeah, I felt a lot easier in myself. So when you say going feet first, did you feel like you were falling straight down or going horizontally feet first? Uh, yeah, I was going horizontally, I would say about 85 miles an hour um, and, and just trying to take everything in. There was no detail inside the tunnel. I was aware of little lights now and again inside. Like I said, it was a bit like going down a road tunnel, but I was aware that there was this light at the end of the tunnel. And as I said, all the pain had gone from my chest. I felt very light. I didn't feel as if I had any physical encumbrances at all. I felt, it just felt very odd. And, I, and I've got the kind of brain that tries to take everything. So I'm trying to take all this in, thinking this is amazing. And I go feet first, and I, I come out, and I'm in a room. I land feet first in this room. And I would say the room was about 20 foot square. I would say that it was, it was white beyond white. It was clinical, like a hospital room, but the walls were glowing, the floor was glowing, the ceiling was glowing. It was, it was like the walls were alive. If you were to stop right there and someone said, where are you right now at that point? Where would you say you were? I haven't got a clue. Okay. I haven't got a clue. In hindsight, I would say it was some kind of waiting room because it felt like this was a, the, there was a boundary. Um. And I felt that, and I, there was a wall in the door, and that I, didn't first, I, didn't, I didn't clock it when I first went in. I saw it later, but I knew that if I went beyond that door, Eric, I, that was it. My physical life was gone. I was over. I was done. I was going to have lots of new adventures, but my physical life was there. I would be a, a hospital stat, um, and that would be the end of it. And I, I saw some figures in front of me, to my, uh, in front of me and to my right, and there were two at the front, and there was quite a few people at the back, I'd say about 10 or 12. And the figure at the front was my mother, who had passed in 2009, and behind her, dutifully, as always, stood my stepfather, who had passed in 2005. And behind them, I would say, again, there was about 10, 12 people, and I knew some of them, and I didn't know some of them. I felt a bit, my attention was focused upon my mother. Now, what did your mother and stepfather look like? Did they look like right before they passed away? Were they younger? That's a really good question, Eric. And it's one that I hadn't considered at the time until a couple of years ago when somebody asked me on a Facebook group. And I thought, oh, I'd never thought about that. My mother, when she passed, was 84. She passed with dementia. She was incredibly frail, was never going to walk again, um, was, was nothing. I, I didn't recognize her at all. Uh, physically, she, it was definitely her time to go. I would say she looked... 39, 40, that sort of age. My stepfather looked about 20, he was in his late 70s when he went, I would say he looked about 20 to 30 years younger as well. Um, and my mother was walking. I mean, my mother wasn't able to walk for the last few months of her life at all. 
And she was bounding around with all this energy as she had way before, you know, when she was younger, bags of energy, even though she was only four foot 11, bags of energy. And my mother came up to me and I said, where am I? And she said, oh, it's lovely to see you. And us British can talk quite quickly, but my mother spoke like a machine gun. And she was just, oh, it's wonderful. Oh, you should see the flowers. The flowers are amazing. Oh, the colors, the trees. Oh, my God, the animals. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, it's fantastic. And all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying, whoa, 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 where? Because my brain's still going, what is going on? I don't know where I am. One minute I'm in the hospital bed going, ouch, that's a bit sore. And the next thing I'm going down a tunnel at walk three. And now I'm in a room and I don't know what's going on. And you're here and you shouldn't be here. And he, yeah, a big question mark over my head in part. Yeah. Answer the question, please. <laughs> you know, get to the point, please. It's great to and, see you, but answer the question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Priorities. Uh, and she said, oh, it's wonderful. You're, you're going to love all this and love all this. And I, I, I got angry. I started getting angry. Not with her, not with anybody in the world. I got angry at me really angry at me because it was for, for although it, it was like there was a thousand thoughts and voices in my head at the same time. And I'm, although there's nothing there, it's like I'm looking in a mirror and I'm judging myself and I'm judging my life. And I'm thinking, right, big question here. Have I achieved what I wanted to achieve in life creatively? Well, I've got married, I've had children, I've had good jobs, you know, I've had love, I've had this, I've had that. But creatively, how much have I achieved of what I came here to do? And I worked out it was probably less than 10%. And I got so cross at myself. I was judging. No one was judging me. I was judging. I, I was judging myself completely and utterly. And my mother, the more she went on about the flowers and, and how lovely they were and all the different colors. Oh, you'll love them. Oh, you should see the rivers and all oh, the waterfalls. Were oh, it's one. And I'm thinking in the nicest possible way, mother, shut up. I'm, I'm having I'm having a moment. I'm really having a moment here. This is the moment of all moments. And I thought, do I want to die? No, I don't. I, I want to go. I, I and, and then I got cross. Well, why haven't I done that? And I've not been always the most confident person in life. And although I've had opportunities to do things, I haven't always taken them. I've either been too lazy, too too afraid, too scared, too petrified, even you know. Um, and it's taken me a long time for my true self to come out. Um, but certainly when I was younger, I was very, very hesitant to do anything um, and held myself back a lot. And I just, it was like I was watching all of this being played back in my head. And I thought, you idiot, you absolute, why? And my mother was kept going on about the flowers and the animals. And I said, I've got no interest in what you're saying to me. And she said, she got, so, so, well, I didn't think you would because we, Really saw eye to eye, even though we were very close. We could argue on practically everything. Um, and she said, well, I knew you wouldn't bloody well listen to me. And I thought, oh, okay, that's my mother. And she said, but talk to him. And I thought, who's she talking about? And I looked, and then I saw the door in the wall, and a gentleman came through. And I'm not a religious soul, Eric. I'm not, uh, I'm not a religious person in the slightest. I have a fascination with religion from a psychological, sociological, historical perspective, and I've studied it at university, I find it fascinating because I'm fascinated by the way that we think and, uh, and what, what, what motivates us to think in certain ways. So from that aspect, I'm fascinated by religion, but I'm not a religious person. But this gentleman came through and he was wearing a white robe and he had a beard 
And had I been religious, I would have probably said, oh, that's Jesus. But when I looked into his eyes and his face, he was more, I'd say he was more European than Middle Eastern. So to me, he was a spirit guide. He was a spiritual teacher, a mentor. Can you describe any more about, besides looking sort of European, can you describe any more color of eyes or anything like that? His eyes were very, they drew me in. And it was almost like he's, and I, I would say in terms of color, they were very dark, but they were magnetic. Now, the other thing I have to say, when my mother spoke to me, I saw her mouth, as I, as I did in life, I saw her mouth going like a machine gun, as I said. When he spoke to me, he didn't use his mouth at all. He spoke, it was almost, and he locked me into eye contact, and I heard his thoughts. So it was almost like his eyes were focusing on me and communicating, and it was that way. And I was really agitated by this point, because at, at me, not at him. But it was starting to spell out. I was getting written, oh, you idiot. Why didn't you turn left in 1985? Why didn't you turn right in 1996? All this sort of stuff. And he just came up to me and said, why are you here? And I thought, well, you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm starting to get a bit, you know. He didn't introduce himself. No, no, there was no name. I felt that I knew him in some way. There was a recognition of who he was. But I felt that on a deep level, um, I would say he was, he was I, I'm 6'2", six 6'3". Six he was about my height. He was quite slim in build. Um, the, the white gown he had on was, seemed to be shimmering in different colors. His beard was very tidy. His eyes, I remember, were dark. His hair was a dark color. But as I say, rather than the Middle Eastern, his skin was quite of light, and I would say he was more European. Um, I, I, I was focusing on his eyes more than anything else. His eyes were drawing me in. And he said, why are you here? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And my mother was saying, you can stay, you know, it's lovely, the flowers and all the trees. But yeah, oh, you should see the dancing penguins, they're amazing. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Um, and I said to this gentleman, I'm, I'm realizing that I've, my faults, my, my weaknesses. But again, there was no judgment. And the angrier I got, the calmer he became. And he was calming me down. And if I would get angry or with myself and say, oh, it's not fair. I should have done this. I should have done that. It's my fault. I'm a stupid bleak. He was just, well, and he can knock the ball back into my court. What do you want to do about it? Instead of, you know, saying, well, you should do this or you should do that. What do you want to do about it? And I said, well, I want to write and I'm going to do stuff and I want to write books. And I'm going to, well, I don't know, but it's probably loads of stuff that I want to do, blah, 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 blah. That I should have done when I was 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, blah, 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 all this stuff. And he said, but what do you want to do? Just go and do it. And I thought, well, yeah, but that's a bit simplistic, isn't it? And he said, just go and do it. And every time I tried to say yes, but he knocked the ball back into my core, which are very, with the most gentlest and patient of voices in my mind. And he said, finally, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do a lot of stuff. And he said, okay. And I woke up in my hospital bed. And 10 minutes, I'd say 10, 15 minutes had passed. And I thought, good grief. I thought, that was, that was unusual. And I spent a long time trying to put it together. I felt I came back with something. I felt changed as soon as I came back. I knew that that was a special moment. I could feel in my hospital bed 
I don't know, there was something there, there was an energy there, there was something there, it felt very pleasant. And I thought for the first time, because I've been told, your legs are going to come off, you might die, all this bad stuff. And I felt this, this energy. And something in my head said, you're going to be okay, you're going to be fine. And I was, I was fine. My foot healed miraculously in a very short space of time. Um, I didn't need plastic surgery. And although I, I am officially disabled, I've, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm okay. I get about, I, I make the best of it. I didn't have to have a plastic leg. I didn't have to have my leg amputated. As I said, I didn't need plastic surgery even. Yeah, it, I, I came back with a different kind of, everything's going to be all right. I'm going to be fine. And I didn't know how I knew that. And I kept trying to tell the doctors and nurses, I'm going to be fine. And they would look at the charts and go, well, actually, you're not, mate. You know, you know, it's still touch and go. And they were telling me that for a couple of weeks. I was in hospital for over a month. I was in two hospitals for just over a month. And everywhere I went, they said, well, you, you should be dead. Um, you should, or you shouldn't have a, a leg. Have you still got your leg? And all, all this kind of stuff. I just knew, Eric, that it wasn't my time to go. And I knew that everything was going to be fine from that moment. But you have a lot of time in hospital when you're in a bed for 24 hours a day, because I couldn't walk, obviously, for quite some time. There wasn't enough of my foot there. So you have a lot of time staring at the wall. And I thought, well, what do I do? How do I, you know, I was so thankful for, because every day now is a gift, it's a present. Every day, every day is a delight. And I thought, you idiot, you've wasted 55 years of life. Not, not all the time, as I say. I've had some lovely moments in life. I met beautiful people. I had some great times. But my innermost dreams, my creative desires, I had stamped on them. I put them out, that fire I put out because I didn't feel worthy. I, I wasn't confident enough that I wanted to, to, to um, fulfill those dreams. I want to talk more about how your life changed after this experience. But before we do... Let's just see if there's anything else that you can recall from the experience itself. You talked a little bit about the feelings you had meeting that person mm. that you're yes. not sure who it was. No. Um, and you talked to your mother. Anybody else that you talked to or communicated with at all? No, just those two. Those two were the, the only form of direct communication. I could feel, and again, this is weird, I could feel the connection between everybody in that room. It was like we were all plugged into the same mains. But my mother was one speaker, and this gentleman was the other speaker. Their familiarity with her, um, obviously, that it calmed me because, obviously, oh, it's mum. Hi, I haven't seen you since you died nine, nine years ago now, isn't it? And, and so there was, I think that gave me a sense of familiarity. Um, but then the self-judgment came in. And again, there was no external judgment. There was none of this, you know, you've done this, you should have done that. That came from me. I was seeing my life before my eyes really quickly, a thousand thoughts at the same time. And I was trying to make sense of it. And I couldn't understand why I had not done things in my life when I could have done them. I had the opportunity, I had the skill to do it. I just had not believed in myself enough. And I was so angry with myself. I was so angry with, with myself. You idiot and all this kind of stuff. When the gentleman came in, I did recognize him from somewhere. I don't know. It wasn't, there was a knowing with him. There was a familiarity with him. There was, yes, obviously there's a familiarity with my mother, but with him, there was a deeper knowing 
and the resonance. And I trusted him literally with my life. I would, had he said, you must go to um, Iceland and build a farm and raise ferrets, I would have done that because I would have trusted every, <laughs> every word he said. There was a, such a, a, a depth with him. There was a real knowing with him, Eric. There was a real sense of, I'm, I, I'm there with you. I'm there for you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not looking down on you. And all this is coming at the same time. Do you personally believe that we have some sort of a life before this life, whether spiritual or something else? I, it's a very good question. And, and, and it's a question that is asked a lot and it causes a lot of, <laughs> um, a lot of different answers sometimes and a lot of tension. I personally do believe in reincarnation. Um, I have lots of books on reincarnation. I think the evidence for reincarnation is some of it is pretty amazing. I also, when I was younger, when I was, I was three, I can remember, I may have been a bit younger than that even, I can remember telling my mother, uh, we were in the kitchen and I had a saucepan and I was uh, lid and, and I was driving it around like a car. And she was going, oh, stop it, get out of my way. And I said, and, and for some reason I said, I used to, I used to fly in the Lancaster, you know. I, I mean, I'm three years of age. And she said, you what? What did you just say? And I described being, what, and I used the words, I was a tail gunner in a Lancaster. And I was telling her about what it was like to be up there and how cold it was and everything else and how dangerous it was. And she went, what are you going on about? What are you talking about? But I could see it as if I was sat, I was sat there on the gun at the back and we were flying, at whatever, and I was free. I had all these coats on. And I could see it, and I was just saying to her, like, oh, I've just seen a banana, look, here's a banana. Oh, I've just seen myself in a Lancaster bomber. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And then it went away, and she said, are you all right? And I went, yeah. This person that you were communicating with, mm. and you said you, you felt like you recognized him or mm. knew him. Do you think that yeah. was from prior to this, an experience prior to this that's, earth experience? That's a brilliant question. And I think... My philosophy is that we do, and I'm a great believer in group souls. I know that I've seen him before from somewhere. I'm a great believer that we do work with, you know, the, there is a familiarity with certain people. I've met certain people in life, and there's a recognition, there's an instant recognition. Oh, I know you. And they say the same thing. I've met friends like that, and we've had similar dreams about past lives on the same evening. I think that there has to be something like that there. I knew he was connected to me in some way. I knew it was on a deep level. I felt he was a teacher. But I also, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of personal, it's a very subjective um, topic because some people don't believe in that, some people do. I, my view is that we do alternate and, you know, we do work together with groups. And I think probably maybe my mother has been maybe my mother in a past life or a sister in a past life. And, you know, again, it's, it's a highly subjective personal view. I personally believe that because there's a lot of evidence to suggest for reincarnation and more coming through all the time. There's a lot of, and not just in cultures where religion, you know, it's part of the religion, like in India, I've seen a lot of stuff on YouTube and television where uh, Americans, you know, and, and Brits have that as well, where it's not part of the religious culture, um, especially with stuff relating to World War II and things like that. Um, I had a similar semblance with uh, with her eldest daughter when she was about two, where she described the life before when I wasn't, and she said, "But you weren't my daddy." 
And she described writing a motorcycle. We don't call them motorcycles here. We call them motorbikes. She said, I was riding my motorcycle too fast in a forest. I went into a tree. There was a bright light and I died. And she was two. I was putting her to bed. And I'd been going, isn't Mr. Teddy, he's extra fluffy tonight, isn't he? And she started telling me the story about driving a motorcycle in a different voice even. And then it snapped back again. And I went, oh, please tell me more. I like Teddy. And I went, ah, tell me about the motorcycle. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something that I, I do believe there's something there, Eric. I know it can be a contentious issue, but personally, yes, I think it, there is something there. And that's all I wondered was you personally. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to find all the answers here. That's OK. You also mentioned that in this room, there were other people and you felt some sort of a oneness with them. And I've heard that from other people, too. Um, be even beyond just a room, but a oneness with lots, if not everybody. Can you explain what that felt like, how that was communicated to you? I have only felt that once before in my life. I had a, and I still don't know how to describe this, in the 80s I had an experience. I guess, I think it's called a spiritually transformative experience, an STE. But it was also a bit of an OBE. I had an experience, I, I, it's a very long story and I won't go into depth on it, but basically I had an out-of-body experience where I believe that I met God. And it, I, I know that might sound a bit dramatic, um, and it does every time I say it. But I had this experience where I was flying. I saw this wonderful light in the sky, and I flew towards it. I'd seen my, myself lying in the bed at quarter past three in the morning. I'd gone out. I'd flown up in the sea, and I had this wonderful experience and I'd woken up a couple of times and then immediately closed my eyes and gone back and had the same dream. And I touched this light in the sky and I felt this. And again, I tried to describe this 36 years ago. This is now. I cannot put words to it. I've described it better with music than with words. There was this wonderful connection to the universe. And for a few seconds, I knew everything. I was superhuman. I, I had this wonderful ability of connection and not just within the earth, within the solar system, within the galaxy, within the universe. And I thought, oh, my days. And that changed me a lot and put me on a spiritual pathway in, in the mid-80s. Um, it really changed my thinking because I came back from that and was, was transformed. That connection that I felt in 86 was similar to what was in the room, but I felt, yeah, I felt that connection. And I knew that if I'd opened the door, that connection would continue. And as you... I absolutely said it wouldn't just be a local connection it would be a universal connection and I can remember thinking this is not my time to die but when I do I'm going to come back and explore that that's what that's the first thing I want to explore that connection I want to explore explore all those roads and pathways weren't you curious to see what was beyond that door oh yes yes <laughs> yes for the capital I know you said you were afraid to go through because you wouldn't be able to come back, but couldn't you take a little peek? Oh, I wish. I, I wish. I, I mean, if I could have asked one thing, I would have asked that. I wanted to, because my, my mother was making it worse because she was telling me all these one. Oh, you should have found the colors, all these colors. We oh, it's amazing. Oh, you should see our God. Oh, it's amazing. All the flowers and this and that. And, and the animals and the blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, sounds tempting. It's, it's, it's a, that's a good sell you're giving me there, mother. But, and I, but I knew that the, that was the price. And I knew, I think also, Eric, I think when you go through something like that, I mean, I was only 55 
But you realize life is temporary. Life is short. Life is brief. Um, you know, and you think, well, I'm not afraid to die. I haven't been afraid to die for many, many decades. Um, but I know that one day that's going to happen. And I can't wait for them to open that door and go, go and explore that. Go on, have fun. And it's going to be fantastic. And it's going to be amazing. I was aware that time is short. I was aware that time. And again, you got, you, you're sat in a hospital bed and you've got a lot of time to stare at the wall waiting for the next meal to come around or next cup of tea to come around or whatever. And you think, you know, I, I, I really started thinking philosophically and I thought, wow, because it became clear to me from the, the dialogue afterwards how close I'd come to death. Apparently I came to within an hour of dying. And I'd actually died twice. And they were telling me all the stuff afterwards once they were sure that I wasn't going to actually have a heart attack or hearing that I nearly died and actually died. So, um, yeah, I believe it does, it makes you think. And I've chatted to people who've had NDEs online and and we say, wow, isn't life precious? It's, but isn't it short? And I think that's the, I knew that that stuff would be there waiting for me. And it is like, yes, I am a big kid and now I'm waiting for the ultimate Christmas present. But then, and that's how I see it. Um, and it's not always, I don't know, if you try to explain death like that to some people, they're probably not going to, they're probably going to think you're a bit weird. But for me, it's an exciting, it's going to be an exciting time of discovery. And, and I want to, I want to, I want to see the door. I want to see the, the, all the stuff that my mother said. I know it's going to be great. I've seen these in meditations. I've seen these when I've had out of body experiences, but I, I, you know, so I'm not afraid to get there, but it's, it wasn't my time to go. It, it, I now, right now, this moment I needed to hear, and I need to be doing things and I need to be fulfilling at least some of the things that I, I chose to do before I came down here. Um, and that's what I feel. Okay, Kev, let's move on. Let's talk about what happened after your NDE. Um, I wasn't quite clear on exactly what happened with your foot. How did you not have the surgery that morning? What, what happened there? Um, very briefly, they came around at nine o'clock to look at my foot, which the previous day had been black uh, with, a, I mean, it wasn't a pleasant sight. It was literally ripped open. It was the worst injury to a foot they'd ever had without the leg being immediately amputated. But when they came at nine o'clock to do the amputation, the surgeon who saved my life sent the nurse over who hadn't seen. He said, you must look at his foot. It's a nightmare. Oh, I said, it's really, you know. And they checked on me to make sure I was all right to have the amputation. And I said, yes. I'd seen the psychologists, because it's a big thing. I talked about it with my wife. And they said, you know, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be life-changing. You're all right with this. And I said, Well, yeah, because I don't want to die. You know, it, it's a no-brainer. They were all oh, you're so brave. No, I'm not brave. I'm just, I'm just it's you can die or you can lose your leg. And and you know, it's for me that's a that's a no-brainer. But when they came in at nine o'clock to wheel me down to surgery, they took the bandages off. And all trace of sepsis are gone. It was pink as a rose. And they said, we don't know how that happened. We, that is weird. And they said, but it's not going to heal because there's nothing in the middle. So there's no bits. And then it started healing. And then they said, well, it's still going, you know, it's still not going to heal. There's not enough. And then they said it would take 10 years, seven years, five years, three years, all this. And it healed inside four weeks. It filled up. But with what, we don't know. And again, that was, you know, they said, well, basically, you're weird. It does officially say on my record, Mr. Milson is, is very hard to kill. Um, that is on my <laughs> official medical record. He's officially very, and I thought, wow, that's a good superpower. Uh, I, apparently, I am very officially, I'm very hard to kill, because they said if that didn't, that's incredible. 
And then, but they said, you stop it and you're going to need plastic surgery. And the foot just went, oh, shut up. And just got on with it. And then a month later, they said, well, you're weird. Um, and they, they let me out of the hospital. Um, I do have problems with it. But essentially, yeah, it's a, it's a mystery as to how I haven't lost my, my leg. Um, the, the best person with whom I had the conversation in hospital, and the nurses are much more open-minded, doctors and surgeons, very clinical. They won't, they won't, yeah, um, they don't understand anything. All they say is, well, the body's a funny thing, you know. The nurses knew that I was into spirituality, and so they were more open to it. But when I was in the second hospital, they sent around a hospital chaplain, a, a, a lovely Christian lady. And we, we had a lovely conversation, and she said, can I talk to you about religion? Are you religious? And I said, no, I'm not religious. And she said, no, it's fine. She said, can I talk to you about the power of God's love? And I went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I talked to her years off for an hour. And she was a medic herself, and she said, I don't know how that's happened, but you shouldn't be here. Your legs shouldn't be here, and you shouldn't be here. And we talked. I didn't tell her about the near-death experience. So I thought that might be pushing it a little bit too far beyond the bounds. But we talked about just the, that power of love and, 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 and that recuperative love and the power of faith, because apparently my positive mind has also been a large part of my healing process. And we talked about the positivity of the mind and the positivity of the spirit and the soul. And we had a really lovely conversation. And it was, you know, because I think we needed at that point, I needed to talk to somebody about things beyond the physical, because so much had happened that wasn't physical, it was beyond the physical. So, um, yeah, it was a, it's, it, I still have issues and I still have to go to the hospital every other week to just have it dressed and looked at, make sure it's not infected. But essentially, you know, it's, I get by and I'm lucky to be alive and I'm, I'm just grateful for every single day, Eric. I, I'm just grateful for every single day. So how has your life changed? You talked about some creative things that you felt like you had to do. What sorts of yeah. things have you done? Up until that point, up until 2018, I'd had lots of things planned. My strong, I'm great at planning things. I'm brilliant at that. I'm black belt in planning. Discipline, nothing. Absolutely useless at it. So I had all these things, and I've got a thousand ideals, and I want to do this, but hang on a minute, that's shiny over there, so I'll go and do that for a bit, no, and then I'll go back and do this. So I had all these things I was juggling, you know, um, all these different things and spinning 20 plates at once, and I wasn't going anywhere. I was, just doing, I was just doing donuts. I wasn't doing anything at all. And I thought, right, this needs to change. And also, how do I pay that back? Well, how do I get my voice out there? And I've been in spirituality, I guess you would say, in holistic things and spiritual thoughts pretty much since I was a child. So going back over half a century now, because of things that had happened to me as a child of a paranormal nature and it got me interested. And then that developed into an interest in spirituality and spiritual development, all that, all that kind of stuff. I'm just curious as to mysteries of the, the great mysteries of life. I'm, I'm really curious about everything. And I want to know the answer to them. And... I decided to put more effort into that. I set up um, a Facebook group uh, called Life Beyond Life. And I thought, right, let's, let's get into this. And I started, a few years ago, I'd studied parapsychology um, because I realized that there were holes in my learning. And I thought, right, I need to stop being so lame. I need to start um, getting out there. I had no certification, even though I'd done a lot of things in the holistic field and all that kind of spiritual stuff. I had no certification because I hadn't thought it was worth bothering with. So I went out and got certification. I got accreditation. And I thought, how many ways can I help people? 
And how many ways can I get the word out there that life goes on beyond physical life, beyond physical death? So I set up the, the group, Life Beyond Life. I became more vocal on social media. I began writing for websites. I began writing for myself. I began just getting my voice out there. I, I began attending events where I could help other people or, you know, that kind of thing. I just thought I need to be more. And my wife joined me on that journey. And we both, you know, we both became qualified in various holistic practices. We began talking to people who were dying and um, had a fear of dying. And so, uh, and who had a spiritual belief, but were afraid to die. So just being able to put people's minds at ease. And basically we would just talk to anybody. And by opening, by opening, the, by planting those seeds, especially on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff, people began to talk to us and people began to ask a lot of questions. And then we brought more people in and then more people come from over here. And it started to get, it was a bit like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And people, you know, so I thought, well, I'll start with one thing. And then it's just grown and grown and grown. And at the moment now, we're in a position where we've grown so much that we're able to expand. We do meditation classes. It's all free. We don't charge for any of it. We just want to help people to, um, especially with the lockdown that came with the COVID. And, you know, and I think, well, certainly in Britain, but also obviously um, globally, men, there were mental health issues with that. And we set up a group, just a social group on uh, Zoom where we could just have a, an open forum and people could come in and they could talk about their experiences with a nice cup of coffee and whatever. And we would open it up for two or three hours every, every other day or something like that. And people came and then they brought their friends and then their friends brought their friends. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm saying to my wife, we've got something here. We need to now go sideways. We need to take this somewhere else. So at the moment, it's very exciting. We want to get qualified in more things. I became a sound therapist. I am studying music therapy. I'm studying hypnotherapy. I, any way that I can find, I've, I've, I had mental health issues after because obviously I was disabled and with that comes some emotional baggage. So I started studying, I studied psychology. I studied all forms of anything to do with mental health. Um, I studied CBT and uh, all that kind of stuff to help myself and then to help other people. Well, we're happy to be a medium to help you spread that word a little bit. It's fantastic. In wrapping up, is there one last thing that you would tell to people, to our listeners out there, especially people that are lacking some hope in an afterlife? What would you say to them? That's a fantastic question, Eric. That really is. I would say, and I know there's a lot of pressure, yeah, because in the West here, we are still at the stage where what we believe in is not accepted scientifically. And I don't think it will be for maybe 100 years. Maybe with quantum mechanics and quantum physics, that might change. But at the moment, if you walk into a workplace and say, hey, I, I saw my mother last night. She was floating above my bed and glowing. Oh, it was lovely. We had a lovely chat about strawberries. You're going to get laughed at. You know, if you say, oh, I saw a ghost or I saw a UFO, you're going to get laughed at. And it upsets me because, and that's partly why I set the group up, so we have a safe place. So you can come in and say, oh, I had this experience. You, you know, and people come in and say, please don't laugh at me, but I had this experience where I saw my dog, and my dog's dead. Is this normal? And we say, God, yeah, absolutely it's normal. I saw my mother, my son, my father, 
my brother, my sister. And I think I would ask people to explore. There's so much information out there. There are books going back on this thousands of years. Modern spiritualism is 150 years old. There's so much out there. There are websites, there are Facebook groups, there are groups all over the place on social media. And yes, there is a lot of misinformation at times. And yes, there are people who you know, take to extremes. But the truth is, you know, I'm going to sound like um, um, X-Files, the truth is out there. It is. And it's taken me, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at very dusty old books written by very dusty old people now. But the, the, the stuff that was written 100 years ago is as relevant now, if not more so. You know, and all right, maybe the youngsters and, and aren't going to look at dusty old books written by dusty old people. But there is stuff out there. And the hope that life goes on is so important. And, you know, podcasts like yours, Eric, are just, to me, they're, they're, they're priceless. Um, and you and everybody else, because you're shouting. You, you, are, you are the voice boxes. You are the speakers. And you, people, you know, like I say, if you go into work and say, oh, blah, 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 well, you know, you need to put more water in that, mate. You know, you, you need to stop eating those weird mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. It comes from you. People say, oh, did you listen to Eric last night? He had this, this lady on, blah, 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 blah. And I think the more that we can spread that knowledge out there, that, that, that you know, these, these are real experiences. We're not loopy. And I know cynics will always say, well, when I are down to two things, one, he's making it up. Two, there's something wrong with him. Um, and that's, that, that's all they can see past. But there is so much evidence out there. There is a wealth of information. There are so many people sharing their stories. And groups like ours, Life Beyond Life on, on Facebook, people come in every day and say, I had these wonderful experiences. And they're in a supportive group, in a supportive network, like the same people who come on and, 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 you know, and, and talk to you. And I think the more that we can extend that network out, the more that we can spread the word, and be resolute and say, I did have this experience. You know, I wasn't dreaming. I, it wasn't because I ate a load of cheese before I went to sleep. I did have this experience. It was real. And, you know, especially ones that are highly evidential. You know, you come back with evidence. A lot of near-death experiences and other body experiences bring back evidence. There are always going to be people who don't accept what we say. And the science at the moment is not going to do that. And I, I'm not interested in science. And like I've said before, if you, if you lose your daughter, say, and you go through that horrific process of grief and bereavement and loss and pain, you're not going to care what some guy sitting in an office thinks about in Paris. You're not going to care what some lady thinks in Los Angeles. You don't care about that. All you care about is the knowledge that your loved one has not, had, you know, is still in some form a part of you and has gone on beyond physical death. And I, you know, I'm working on a book at the moment and people are saying, oh, are you going to aim at the scientific community? No, I, I'm aiming it for people who've lost their loved ones. I, I'm aiming it at people who are in that dark abyss of grief and bereavement and loss and wondering and just screaming for hope. And I just want a spark of sign to say, my daughter is still around. My father is still there. My pets are still here. And I think that's, you know, that's what you're doing. And hopefully that's what I'm trying to do as well. And I think that's all that we can do, Eric, is just to spread that out, where, out there.
That's awesome. Thank you very much. You're very, and thanks very for welcome. being on the show today. Appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor, sir. I've uh, listened to uh, a, f- a few of yours now. And as I say, you're, you are spreading the word and, 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 and fair play to you for doing that. Because as I say, that's all that you can do. And, and hopefully, like planting seeds, those turn into flowers. And we start with a couple of flowers and we end up with a whole field of flowers that radiate <laughs> knowledge, wisdom, information. And that's what I think that's what the humanity needs. We need hope. There's enough pain in the world and gloom and doom and hatred and despair. We need a little bit of light and and, and fair play to you, sir, for actually doing that and, and getting out there. So thank, thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege of it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kev. And I hope the weather gets better over there. If you've had a round-trip death experience and would like to share it with us, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to me, eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you've found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, rate us five stars, and be sure to visit roundtripdeath.com. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. (music) 